Well, welcome everyone. Good morning. Um, you might notice a couple of things different today. Uh, first, we have the Christmas ornamentation, but we also have the candles uh, as we enter into the season of Advent. And so uh, some of us come from different faith traditions and backgrounds, so I thought I'd take just a minute and um, for all of us to remind us that Advent is a season of, of hope and expectation and waiting for our, uh, for our Christ to be born. And so today, as we start that, we're going to light the candle of hope. Before we light the candle of hope, I'm going to read a short reflection in order to prepare our hearts and, uh, hearts and minds. As I sit to write this, I'm in upstate New York. It's morning and the sun is just waking up. An early snow covers the ground and it catches a bit of sunlight peeking through the trees. A blue jay lands on a feeder in the backyard, pecking at her breakfast. Two deer search for food by the stone wall that divides the yard from the woods. They walk deliberately, their heads nuzzled in the undergrowth. Soon the sounds of brewing coffee, frying eggs, and giggling children will fill the house. The barking dog will scare off the bird and the deer, and the buzzing phone will interrupt it all. Earlier this year, I stood in the kitchen of our Brooklyn apartment talking to my wife, Heather, about my work. I've been faithfully doing the same thing for 17 years, and now I wrestle with what's next. A hopeful conversation in some ways, and a totally scary one in others. As we talk, I'm overcome with the realization that my identity is wrapped up in my work. I thought I was rooted in something deeper, immune from this sort of thinking. I'm torn. I feel secure in my work, my purpose, and my calling. Yet, without my work, I struggle to define myself. Something healthy and purposeful has gone too far, and in the hustle of New York City, I I often feel more driven than called, and this scares me. And here I am, with the ability to ask myself what is next, to reset yet I struggle to let go of what I have. In my mind, I return to that early upstate morning and others just like it. The rural setting strips away the tensions of the city. It offers a peacefulness that is hard to find in Brooklyn. In the quiet of that setting, the harshness of our day-to-day, the pressures of work, the overbearing economics of the city all seem to fade, and it is so beautifully different. I am torn. Outside of the city, I feel at peace, but not at home. Inside the city, I feel at home, but not at peace. The places I find myself give, my, give me life while simultaneously robbing me of something else. The stillness of the countryside renews my spirit and, re, and relaxes me, but it doesn't challenge me. The economy of the city brings sustenance, but perverts my sense of work. Coming into, these Advent se- coming into this Advent season, this, these are the questions I wrestle with. Who am I and where do I belong? These questions aren't unique to me. They are the questions of the human experience, and they sit at the core of all of our hearts. I'm just surprised that all these years in, and these are the questions that still bring about attention in me. I need the work and the busyness of the day because that is who I'm meant to be. I am called to fix eggs and to quiet the children. I am called to good work that brings about redemption and healing. But at the same time, I'm also met for the ongoing peace of the morning. Sure, sometimes the tension loosens, The work project that demands just enough of me points me to the feeling of perfect balance. The sun setting down Ninth Street hits at the idea that peacefulness can be found anywhere. The blue jay and the deer searching for food remind me of God's sustaining provision. In these small glimpses of the eternal, I'm reminded of what is to one day come. So I wait. With great expectation, I long to one day know myself in full. I wait with great hope for the perfect harmony of the still heart and busy hands. I hope to one day finally be home. And so today we light the candle of hope as we remind ourselves 
and our hearts that we have a real hope in Jesus who can bring ultimate reconciliation. And now for our scripture reading. The teaching text today comes from John 1, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Nice to see all of you. Did you sense the difference when you came in that we're out of ordinary time? We're in Advent now. There's diffusers about. (laughs) Holiday scents abound. Let me pray for us. And then we're going to have our first ever real live prize, Advent Week 1, Christmas Trivia Giveaway. Coming up next, let's pray. (laughs) Oh, Father, have mercy on me and uh, and all of us. We ask that you would just lead us by your Holy Spirit right now. We uh, do recognize um, the new season that we are in. And um, yeah, I was just grateful for Jason's reflection just to even for a moment in our minds, give us pause, help us to take a deep breath and reflect on what it means to wait um, for things that we're longing for, and we certainly have to. Uh, But we can wait with hope, and so we light the candle even if we're not feeling it, even if we don't have a sense of the hope right now. I pray that you would bring it to bear on our minds and hearts right now. I pray that you would lift up Jesus in these next few minutes and draw us to yourself and give us the things that come through union with your Son. I pray for no matter where people are at, what end of the spectrum of hope they are on, that this morning you would speak to us by your spirit and awaken, um, awaken hope in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. As promised, I, I, here's what I'm going to do. I'm gonna, I'm, I've got real prizes here, okay? These are Starbucks gift cards, so they smell like corporate greed. They're going to be grateful. Uh, you're going to be loving it. This is not any kind of cool Brooklyn coffee. Um, But here's what we're going to do. I'm going to shout out a famous opening line from a novel. And you have to say the full title of the book to to be eligible to win the prize. We're going to do three of these. I'm going to shout out the name of the novel. Whoever says the full name of the book first, I'm going to give this to. And and the judging is going to happen like this. Totally subjective. Just whoever I think (laughs) I hear first, that's the person who's going to win. All right, so you ready for the first one? This famous opening line from a novel. I need the entire title. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four Privet Drive were proud to say they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. What? Say that again. Correct. We've got a winner, folks. Five dollars to Starbucks. That's almost going to get you a latte. All right, here we go. We're really cooking now. We're going to go touch highbrow if you're ready. It was the best of times. Was it you? Okay. Since it was a tie, can you give us the author as well? All right, fine. We'll give it to you. It's, it's old Charles Dickens, though. Chuck, as I like to call him. Uh, Chuck Dickens. Okay, last one. Here we go. Whew. Stop it. <laughs> 
It doesn't count. I haven't said it. Call me Ishmael. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for your winners. That was, that was honestly more fun than I thought it was going to be. That was great. That's the end of the sermon. Bow your heads, close your eyes. All right. What's the point? Well, you quote any one of these fam- famous lines, and it is. It's immediate. Right? People immediately know what, what, what book you're talking about. You don't even have to have read it, and you sort of begin to evoke the spirit of these stories just by hearing, hearing the, the first line. And uh, as cheesy as it might, might be to, to draw an equivalent, that's exactly what the Apostle John is doing. He's, he's, there's already three stories about Jesus' life that are in circulation at this point. And he's writing to fill in some crucial gaps as an eyewitness of the life of Jesus. And he chooses to begin his story with the most famous opening lines of any story in the world at that point. He begins his story uh, by quoting the three most famous words from the most famous story. In the beginning. In the beginning. That's how, that's how the Apostle John, this is how the Torah begins. This is the opening lines, of course, of the book of Genesis. For an entire nation, for anyone who knew about Yahweh, the God of Israel, this is the story of how everything begins. This is the, the authoritative origin story. But then John does something a little bit unexpected. He says in the beginning, so everyone who knew Torah, everyone who knew Israel's story and Yahweh, their ears would have begun to perk up. But then he does something unexpected and he says, in the beginning was the word. And the Greek translation of the, of the word that he uses there is the, the logos. And so essentially um, what he, he's doing would sound to an, an original hearer something like, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. So, you know, call me Ishmael. He's like, you'd be like, hang on a second. Like, those both sound familiar to me, but they don't go together. I think, I think, you're, mixing, I think you're mixing something up. Is that Moby Dickens? <laughs> it's a, that's a free Advent joke right there. Um, he's combining two sort of like world-famous accounts uh, that give meaning to life and meaning to the world and, and, and shape to sort of the origin story of, 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 of human nature, of how we interact in the world, of how, how, what's the meaning of life, how are we to relate to one another. In the beginning and the Logos is a combining of two stories. It's an, an attempt, in a sense, to get everyone's ears to perk up. So as I said, in the beginning was for the God-fearers, for those who believe, for the Hebrew people, for those who knew the covenant of God, for those who are expecting divine action in the world, and there's some of you in this room right now, that's no problem for you. <laughs> you expect divine action in the world. You, you, you believe you can pray and you're going to see God a- act in response to that prayer. You have, you have sort of stories that go back like piles of rocks in your history where you say, this far God helped me and this far God helped me. And they're Ebenezer's. They, they look back in your life and it's nothing for you to expect divine action in the world. But there are others in this very same room where it's really challenging. There's things that you've prayed for and, and they haven't happened. Or you've been longing for something and it, and, and it hasn't materialized. You've expected something from God and it hasn't been there. So it's a lot harder for you to start it in the beginning. And maybe it's a lot easier for you to begin with the word, which is the logos, which is sort of like a philosophical, rational foundation for, for life. That the, the Greeks 
were essentially saying if, if life was stripped down to its very essence, if there's something that's core, that's holding it all together, something that makes existing possible, whatever that thing is, we're going to call it the Logos, even if there's a mystery to it. So for the Hebrew people, for the covenant people, for the God-fearers, there was the in the beginning. And then for everyone else who are like, I'm not sure I'm there on the whole faith thing, but now you're talking about Logos, now you're talking about rationale, now you're talking about my experiences and my philosophy. John knows what he's doing. He's intentionally calling these famous openings together. By the time the gospel had spread, I said John's gospel was the fourth one written. So there were already three stories of Jesus' life circulating. He's writing to fill in some crucial details. But by the time he writes this, the message of Jesus and, and, and the gospel movement had spread all throughout the Roman Empire. So uh, scholars and historians believe there was about 100,000 Greek-speaking Christians to every one Jewish Christian. So he, he, it's important that he bring in the Logos in to this story. John is pulling together both worlds. The, the, the sort of example I was tooling around in my mind with how, how you understand this is imagine that you go to a cocktail party around the holidays, right? And you know you're going to be around a group of people that you don't normally hang with. But a friend's invited you and you're like, okay, I'll, I'll go. I'll give it a shot. So you show up, but the friend who invited you is not there yet. Wah, wah. Awkward social moment, alert. So what do you do, right? You grab a drink, you grab some food, and you look desperately for someone who looks willing to have a conversation. You go in, and you get in the corner with that person, and you start talking to them with a level of desperation, like, let's hold the focus here, let's keep this going. I don't want to be the one standing alone, just like, I'll go back to the food table, thank you. Um, or maybe, maybe you're fine with that. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just talking from my experience. So five minutes into the conversation, things are going well, but you didn't know this person. And then you realize someone that you do know is telling a story and everyone in their group is laughing. And then you hear them say the name of your best friend. And then you hear them say the name of the company that you work for. What do you want to do? You want to kind of find a way to get out of your current mingling situation and get over to that story. Why? Because someone is telling your story, and when someone starts telling your story, or a story that you're intimately connected to or involved with, you want to be a part of it. You want, you, you, you want to share in that. So maybe you're a little socially awkward to get over there, but it's because someone is telling your story. In six words, John has gotten the ears of everyone, no matter what their philosophy or belief system, he's gotten their ears to, pick, to, to perk up. In six words, he's done this for the entire known world. You have to admit, it's pretty good. I think he probably had help. Holy Spirit, anyone? You can shout amen, it's Advent. But next, we have to say, okay, he's done this. This device, he's gotten the attention of everyone, but why? What's he, what's he trying to do? He's claiming something rather staggering. The, the, the words are poetic, and so especially around Christmas time, our expectation for, for the poetic and sort of like the hallmark sentiment can be so high that we zone out a little bit when we begin to hear poetry. And the poetry of this, we might lose some of the staggering nature of, of what's being said. But John is saying to the Greeks, you're right to say there is a logos, Right? He's sort of like, he's already said to the Hebrews, yeah, there was an in the beginning. And remember that story. Whenever you see the Old Testament quoted in the New, it's often not just the sentence that's being mentioned, but it's the entire context. That's a really important sort of Bible study tool for understanding that the author is often referencing the entire situation, not just the specific sentences that are mentioned. So when he says in the beginning, 
The people are thinking there was darkness and void and the spirit of God hovered over the faces of the deep and somehow this mysterious Yahweh, one being, said, let us make people things in our, in, 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 let's, let's make people in our image in this weird plurality that's true. So that's all there in the beginning. But then to the Greeks, he's saying, there is a logos. There is a rational principle that governs the world that is the foundation of existence. You're, you're, you're right to think that. But the staggering thing is he says that Logos is Theos. That Logos is God. The rational principle is not just a principle, it is a person. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The principle by which everything exists, John is saying, and you don't have to be there yet on belief, but this is what he's saying, is that principle by which everything exists, everything is founded, is a person. The implications of this are really important. So this is maybe the most philosophical of, of, of the talks in Advent. And, and so just stay with me because these implications are really important. John is saying this word was a person and was pre-everything. And this word, this logos, was participating fully in the act of creation. This word, if we can imagine, it, is so substantial, so real, that so absolute that the speaking of this word made a reality into, exi- into existence. Like, it's C.S. Lewis trying to imagine this uh, for kids in the, in the Narnia series, right? He puts Aslan at the center of creating Narnia, and how does he do it? He sings out, and what he sings, the word he says, there's no division between the intention and the reality. There's a huge difference, right, in our words that we share because there can be a gap between our intention and reality, right? That's a, people say he's not, he's not walking his talk, <laughs> Because there can be a gap for us between, between spoken word and reality. But with God, the word, the logos, as a person, when the word is spoken, the reality begins. The, the reality sort of cracks into existence. So it, it's important. There's no division between the intention and the action and the language. But also you begin to see this mystery. The word was with God. This word, this logos, was with Yahweh, right? The, in the beginning, people get it. He's talking about Yahweh. He's talking about the, 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 the Torah. He's talking about the one who made, who made the world. But now he's also bringing in the Greek people, and he's saying, listen, the logos was with Yahweh. The logos was Yahweh. What? The word was God. They were together. They were the same. Simple. One of my favorite preachers said years ago, like, if you're going to make up a religion, don't make up the Trinity. <laughs> Just have the God be the one person because it's so much easier. <laughs> the Trinity blows our mind. It stretches our faith in every, every, every possible capacity of our intellectual reasoning. Like, we have to sort of wade into it by faith because we don't know anything of a being that can be one person and yet three persons. And yet the Bible says that and doesn't blush, <laughs> It just gives us the reality of the, of the Trinity. I, I, was, I was sitting, laying with my daughter uh, just a few, a few nights ago, and I ended up sharing this exact same thing on the Alpha Retreat, because we just got, I woke up in Beacon, New York this morning. Um, we went on Alpha Retreat. If any of this is confusing, try Alpha next year. It will answer all of your questions and solve all your problems. Well, we just got back from the Alpha Retreat, where the course has been building. We're talking about like how do we understand the nature of God? And it reminded me of this conversation I had with my six-year-old, my seven-year-old daughter. She's she's seven now. And she says, we're praying at night. She says, God, uh, not God, she's dad. Um, 
how can we pray to God and he be in this room and be in heaven? I'm like, super simple, babe, let me explain. Um, and I, I, just, I just stumbled into it, but I, I used something that helped me. And it was that there are nature, there, are, there is a complexity of being that we can understand in the natural world, and it goes up, right? You have the same matter that these chairs and our, 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 our eyes and our hair follicles and all of it, that same matter also can be found in rocks, and, and there's so much shared sort of matter amongst all the life on earth. And so you can have a rock, but then there's something true and yet substantially different about having a living plant, right? Different from a rock is a tomato plant, that it's alive, that it's susceptible to the elements. But that it also can give something that gives, that gives nutrients that's, that's beautiful in its own right, but also you can, you can take it into yourself in some, in some way. And then you go from, from a plant to a, a dog, right? And there's a big difference between a tomato plant and a puppy. There's a complexity of being, right? There's a level of friendship that a dog can offer you that a tomato plant can't, right? There's some initiative on both sides, perhaps, but there's no question that a, a dog explaining to a tomato plant the nature of its reality, there's going to be some challenges, I would say. Then you go from a dog to a human being, right? Now someone like you, made in a very real sense in the same image that you are. They're having a shared experience. They're, they're a physical being, but also there's something non-material about their consciousness. And, and you can relate to that. And you're actually souls, as mysterious and poetic as it might be, can mingle in real friendship. And so we understand the scope of the, the being of being human, even though there's obviously tons of questions. And then imagine you take the next leap up in being. And you have God. Trinity, some way, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet one, and it is as challenging, right? It's like, go and explain photosynthesis to your dog, then you'll be able to explain the Trinity to people. It's about that type of leap. Now, the dog is sustained, his very life is sustained by photosynthesis, but he can't get it. And in a real sense, our life is sustained by Trinity. We're invited into the life of the Trinity in a profound, beautiful way, but it doesn't mean that we're going to be able to easily understand every I and cross every T. So I'm laying there in the bottom bunk of a triple bunk bed with my seven-year-old daughter trying to say, listen, yes, God is here, and yet he's also in heaven. He can hear everything that you whisper, even things that you think in prayer, and yet he's sitting on a throne in heaven with the authority and power to direct the world. And I know you're seven, but remember the tomato plant? And she totally got it. Great dad. I love what C.S. Lewis talks about, like trying to get, like, it's, it's helpful just to take a single individual moment to try to understand the reality of the Trinity. So imagine you've got a believer kneeling in their room to pray. Right, and they're praying to God. They're praying to Yahweh, the Father. But they're, they're not coming and saying, God, I want answers to these questions or answers to these requests because I've earned it. They're praying in the name of Jesus. They're praying on the record and account. They're saying, Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection counts for me. I'm adopted into the family. So I pray to the Father in the name of the Son. And I'm thinking of things randomly that weren't on my mind as I begin to pray. What's happening there? The Spirit is involved in leading you in prayer. So when, even in the sort of ordinary, mundane moment of a believer kneeling in their study to pray, you have the Trinity <laughs> present. Father praying in the name of the Son by the leading of the Spirit. And all this is hidden in the Apostle John who is a witness to Christ's life saying, listen, it's mysterious, it's poetic, but it is everything. It is in the beginning and it is the Logos. It is pulling together every story you've ever heard. 
In the Hebrew poem, in the beginning in Genesis, it says there was darkness over the face of the deep. The world was formless and void. And then God spoke, let there be light. I'm going to talk about the mechanics of that in just a minute. So many of, of maybe us in here and, and our contemporary world trip over the book of Genesis because they stumble over the mechanics of creation. And I think that the, the mechanics problem is so much less important than the reality that, that John is saying this logos, this foundational rational principle that the world is based on is actually a person. That means the very foundation of the world's fabric of reality is relational. Somehow God can be love in his very being, not just absolute static power, but love. And to share in creation out of the overflow of that relationship is what John is getting at. There was a speaking word out of an overflow of joy to say, let's have some people and some animals and some things share in this. It's going to be great. So Trinity creates and there's no gap between intention and action, even though the mechanics aren't all spelled out for us. So John is saying, this logos, this word, this person, this Jesus that you're about to meet on these pages was there at the very beginning, was present in creation. But then he moves quickly to include that this Jesus is also present in the remaking of the world. That God is his heartbroken about the reign of darkness, the reality of evil, the reality of pain, the reality of unanswered prayers, the reality of stubbed toes and grieving seven-year-olds and holocaust, that, that, that God is grieving about these things. And so though he has made the world as an overflow of relationship, he's also remaking the world in the same way by entering the story, by coming as a word, by speaking a new reality to break in. A revelation of what truly is. Light and darkness. If you read the, the, the accounts of, of the Apostle John, in this letter, and in, uh, in his letter that he, he writes to the church, he becomes sort of like the grandfather of the church. He gets exiled on Patmos. He writes Revelation. We'll, we'll mention that. Very, very easy to understand book, Revelation. Jump into it this afternoon. Light and darkness are huge themes for John's writing. And he uses them expecting us to get that he's talking about the physical and spiritual properties. Light for John is not just a room that you can see in. It's not just sunshine. It is a revelation of what truly is. Light is a revelation of what truly is. As, as much as you're fumbling around in a dark room and the light comes on and now you can navigate because you can see things for where they really are. He's saying when the Logos speaks, when the light speaks, all of a sudden the true nature of human existence and the human story and, and, and flourishing in the world becomes evident through this person. Darkness, uh, similarly, is not just an absence of light, but it is a way of living that conceals the truth. It is a way of living in, in your sexuality, in, in how you treat money, in how you treat your time, that actually suppresses the true nature of reality. And you can get along suppressing the true nature of reality by your thoughts and your habits and your actions and your lifestyle for a time. But eventually you're going to come crashing into something because you're suppressing the truth of your life. And many of you have had that experience. Like, I thought this was going to be something for me. And then you run into a new reality that wakes you up. So we're not just talking about light and dark and their simple physical properties, but in their spiritual reality as well. And John is saying, the God who made this world and has seen it broken by evil has come into it to show it for what it really is and to redeem it and repair it. 
That's how John is introducing Jesus, and that's sort of the most important part of Advent week one, is that he is creator and recreator. He's maker and remaker. He is present in the beginning, and he is present, he is present in the overcoming. In the Genesis account, we see a God, a Yahweh, a word, a spirit, bringing order out of chaos, And this is the part I just want to mention for a second that we're not always given the mechanics that we want. Like, was it 24-hour you know, periods exactly? Was it the beginning of an evolutionary process that God oversaw in some way? Can we incorporate the Big Bang? Can I go to the Natural History Museum and still believe in God? Yes. I want to say that you can we know God can do mechanics. He teaches his people, traveling on this sort of caravan through the wilderness, how to set up a tent for worship all the way down to, the, to a cubit. I mean, he can set up a tabernacle and give you step-by-step instructions. He gives us in Matthew 18 a step-by-step process for what to do if you encounter relational conflict, how to reconcile. Whether it's building a tent or reconciliation, God can do mechanics. And if he's not doing it in Genesis, it's intentional. He's not trying to answer every single question that you might be asking of the text. He's trying to say, let me give you the nature of reality. Let me tell you what human flourishing looks like. Let me help define the problem. He's not saying, let me write a science book for you. That's really important that we come to that text and realize that God is is speaking more to the, the, the heart of who we are as human beings and how he's going to be engaged in the world. He's not giving us some of the mechanics that we long for. But you know the mechanics he does give us? They're relational. He spoke through the word. He didn't just communicate like, you know, with with silly putty. He spoke through a a, a person. Like this person is embodied in in the Psalms and the Proverbs as, as wisdom. It comes to be the person of Jesus in the New Testament. It's always the same. It's always the logos. It's always the word. And yet God created in relationship. The only mechanics he gives us that we can hang on to is, 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 is relational. It, he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. This is a cooperative process. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So what am I saying? God in the beginning created out of relational overflow. That same God is now remaking the world out of relational overflow. By bringing in family. People who don't feel qualified, people who feel like they're too different from one another, people who feel like they should never be a part of the family, he's bringing all of them in. He's saying, my death on the cross makes you new. Come share in my resurrection, which is the first birth of the new creation that I'm making. And it's going to extend beyond everything we've ever seen and known into something that is connected to what I've always intended. So I just want you to think of some examples for me. This is important to make this come home a little bit. Because you can celebrate creation and recreation even now, right? Of course you can. I was just in Beacon enjoying the, the, the beauty of our creation, right? You have the rays of sun breaking through a tower of clouds and hitting, hitting the water, right? It's creation. There's an innocence in the beauty and the power that you see there. But then you see another thing, which is a man who's shedding tears around a dinner table, Because he just saw his grandson graduate and he's two years sober and he knows that if he hadn't got sober, he might not have made this moment. And so he's shedding tears and that's recreation. You got the creator, which is the the mountain stream and it's tumbling through this small pass and the rocks and it's going down into a pond in the forest and then a deer comes up and, and, and laps at the water. Creation, it is there, it's worth celebrating, it reflects God's glory. But then you have a woman lifting up her hands in praise. 
because she's tasting forgiveness like she never has before. And there's a freedom that feels like it's flooding into her spirit that she hasn't remembered in years. It's like she's getting back to a childlike wonder that she had forgotten. Recreation. My kids are staring up at a hawk in Prospect Park that sort of banks against the wind and extends its, its, its wings and goes and lands. And, and you just think, oh my gosh, it's awe-inspiring. It takes your breath for just a moment. Creation. But then you have someone who's worked exhaustedly in the city, maybe in the same career for 17 years, and suddenly they have a breakthrough where they realize, I'm not defined my, by my career anymore. There's something truer about my identity than just what people praise me for. And so there's, there's, there's a new level of peace that enters their heart, Re, recreation. <laughs> Yesterday, I hiked up the Fishkill Ridge Trail, and I saw a pristine waterfall. I was enjoying creation, but later that night, I was sitting in a, in a circle of people in a living room. And th- as we hiked, we told 10-minute life stories. And I heard like, the beauty and the pain of these people's lives. And then we're sitting around praying for one another. And I'm actually seeing, and, and someone shedding tears or, or, or raising their hands in worship, they could be faking it, of course. But I'm seeing the Holy Spirit minister new creation to someone's story that I just got a glimpse of, but that God knows all the way through. There is creation and there is recreation. And the Son, the Word, the Logos is present in both, making and remaking the world. And that is the hope of Advent. That's why it's so important for John to bring these streams together, to say that this relational God is the foundation of this world, and this relational God is the foundation of the new world. That is the substance of our hope. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This son is the creator and remaker In him is a type of life that shows things for what they really are. In him was a life that was a light. What on earth? Metaphor, yes. But it's also there's a substance of his reality that exposes the world for what it really is. It's a type of life that can face darkness and win, even if it first gets crushed by darkness. It can come back. And it can give you, I promise you, even if you're just having to take this on my word, if you can't believe, we'll believe for you for a little bit. This hope... (laughs) can face the world. It is not flimsy, it is not fantasy, it is not hallmark sentiment. It is a substantial reality. And it is connected to the most substantial reality of our world. A hope that can face the world. So let me ask you an honest question at the start of Advent. What is the substance of your actual hope on a day-to-day basis? What stirs your imagination to have confidence to live in a particular way? What is your real hope? And you can answer in the quietness of your inner monologue and no one will know the answer, so we might as well be honest. And the second question is, what would it take in your life for you to reevaluate that foundation? Right, for some of us it means that we lose our, our most significant relationship. We see the person we're in covenant marriage to say, I don't want to be with you anymore. And all of a sudden, like the foundation that we, it sort of evaporates from under us and we say, okay, now I'm willing to evaluate. For some of us, it's a job loss. For some of us, it's, it's, we, we're ravaged by an addiction. We realize, oh my gosh, I'm powerless over this thing that I thought was my enjoyment and my escape. For some of us, it's, it's not as dramatic as that. It's just a quiet desperation of accomplishment over a bunch of years that leads you to the life that you thought you wanted and yet you find an emptiness in it that is gnawing. And you begin to say, what is the foundation? What is my real 
hope. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I have a loss of hope. What would it take for you to reevaluate in a real way the foundation of your hope? That's the question of Advent. I'll say this pastorally without any, sh- any shame associated with it. It's just like something I've seen. My own heart as well. People will resist believing. And people will walk away from God's story for almost any reason. It can be a lack of explanation of some, some mechanical thing that they want to know. Why doesn't this prayer get answered and this one does? It can be something that they perceive as an inconsistency. It can be something that they just don't, that doesn't sit right with them. It can be a disappointment. And those are real, and I don't mean to minimize them at all, but people will walk away from God's story for a, a whole host of reasons. And here's the other thing that I've seen pastorally. People will hold on to their own version of the story no matter how many times it's let them down. Right? We... we like, I'm going to walk down this road that devastated me last time just to make sure that it's still devastating because it's familiar to me, and I'm choosing it. And there's something about that agency that's important. The light shines in the darkness. The true reality shines in the concealment of reality to show things for what they really are. And the darkness has not overcome it. These words, when I was... I have to be honest, pastoral confession, when I heard these, I thought of the end of True Detective season one. <laughs> I cannot in good conscience recommend this show to you. This is not a pastoral endorsement of the show. It is vulgar, it is crude, and it is nearly unwatchable in moments, but I accidentally saw all of it twice. <laughs> I slipped and fell into repeated viewings. I think, honestly, it has one of the better endings of any, of any television show. And one of the final scenes, and I promise this is not really a spoiler, except that you know some characters live, okay? I'm sorry, the statute of limitations on spoilers for this show is run out. Um, But I'm still not even going to spoil it, and you're going to be glad that I said this, probably. And it's near the end, okay? That's something to take hope in. So Marty, Woody Harrelson's character, is pushing Rusty, or Rust, Matthew McConaughey's character. And this is right during the McConaissance. Right, when Matthew McConaughey is sort of like ascending again to the height of his powers, this, you know, post-Sahara, post-failure launch, this is like real McConaughey at the height of his powers. And he's looking up at the stars, it's near the end of the series, he's got a cigarette hanging from his lips and tears are streaming down his cheeks. And, and Rusty is, he's recounting this visceral near-death experience that he's had. And all through the show, he's been this stoic, philosophical rationalist. <laughs> There's a bunch of interactions throughout the show where he's sort of giving his philosophy of life, and it is one that is looking square in the face of the wounds of the world and saying, I could never believe in a God. He's grieving, and and, and he says this, and it's quite unexpected near the end. He says, I tell you, Marty, I've been up in that room looking out that window every night here thinking, there's just one story, the oldest. What's that? Light versus dark. Woody Harrelson says, it appears to me the dark has a lot more territory. It appears to me that the dark has a lot more territory, and there's a long pause. And Russ says, you're looking at it wrong, the sky thing. Once there was only dark. If you ask me, the light's winning. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light in this gospel is not just a metaphor it's a promise. Some of you are scrunching up your face because you didn't get the true detective thing, and that's fine. Don't watch it. 
The, the thing is, they've had to confront real evil in the story. Like, whatever you think of that show, they've had to confront real evil in themselves and in the world. And for Rusty to say, I think the light's winning, he's saying, listen, it was all dark and, and a light broke in. I'm starting to see specks of light. And, and, and this is not just a metaphor, but it's a promise. This light is going to, is going to grow We have to confront real evil in our world. We have to confront that we've participated in it ourselves. We have to confront that we have a share in it. That we live in ways that conceal the truth and contribute to darkness. But the light is breaking in and that is the hope of Advent. And this Apostle John, he wrote another book as I mentioned, Revelation. And at the end of Revelation, he says this about the final city. The way the oldest story ends, he says like this. There will be no more night. For they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of, of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign, they will reign forever and ever. Darkness covered everything like a blanket once and then God spoke, light came to be. But we still, in the human struggle, managed to pull the darkness back over our eyes and so again, God is speaking. This time it sounds like the cry of a newborn baby. Thank you for that. Light has pierced the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. In fact, the light will grow until one day it does swallow up the darkness forever. Here is your Advent hope. It's found in the person of Jesus, the Logos who becomes Theos, the word revealed to us. The one who shared the perfect overflowing love of Trinity and creation. This this Logos becomes the illegitimate child of of peasant parents. (laughs) Why? To bring, to bring that forgotten love back to the forefront. The creator who spoke creation into a being now is walking into every temple, every sinner's house, every home, every hospital. And what is he saying repeatedly? You're forgiven, you're loved, you're free, you're known. There's no, and this is the thing about Jesus. It's the same as in creation. There's not a gap between his intention and his action. He walks up to people that their entire situation is defined. And he's like, pick up your mat and walk. Let there be light. You are healed. You are free. And when he declares it, it is true for you, even if it takes you a while to get there. When he says it, it's true for you, even if it takes you a while to get there. The one who breathed life into the lungs of lifeless people and to the world hangs on a cross and gasps for his last breath so that we can be welcomed in. The light of the world dies. Darkness covers the earth in the, middle after, in the middle of the afternoon, but then he rolls his stone away and there's a tiny pinprick of light shining out of it. And the light is winning. If you, it seems like the darkness has a lot more territory. But if it used to all be dark, then the light is winning. Advent is about how we wait for that victory. What we do when it seems like the dark is being pushed back, but we need it to happen faster. Advent is about inviting us to a hope that can really face the world. It is about a loving God who shared that love in creation, coming into his creation to start a new world. That's enough for today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to pray that the substance of your light and hope would be present in this room right now. That you might speak to us, whatever darkness we are in, 
whatever hopelessness we might be feeling, whatever confusion might be present, whatever distraction might be there, would your light shine through and would you shout your hope to our, to our hurting hearts? I want to pray right now, the spirit that hovered over the face of the deep in Genesis, would you come, Holy Spirit? Would you come, Holy Spirit, and, and lighten our hearts to see that you are remaking the world and we have a share in it? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's how we're going to end. We're going we're gonna to come to the table in just a moment. We're going to sing some worship songs. But I want to say this. I just prayed, come Holy Spirit. And the, the Spirit of God does a number of things for us. It can just give us a simple desire for God if we've, we've forgotten Him in some way. It can remind us of the things that Jesus has promised. That when Jesus declares something for you, that it is true. It's like, let there be light and there was light. Let there be freedom. And there was freedom. Let there be peace, and there was peace. Let there be love restored, and there was love restored. Let there be hope. There's not a gap between what he says and what is real. Some of you need to know that you are a part of this new creation, and that you are sent as a son or daughter of that new creation into this world. So as the Holy Spirit leads, I want to invite you to respond to come and pray with someone up at the front. We'll have people that will be up here to pray with you, to come in faith to the communion table or just to sing out and worship. However the Holy Spirit leads you, let's respond. I'm gonna give you a few moments to think about that, to ask God, how would you have me respond? And then just in a few moments, I'll lead us, I'll lead us to the communion table and we'll continue worshiping. We have lit the candle of hope. May the Holy Spirit light that candle of hope in our own hearts this morning. Amen.